And if anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand, give some kind of a, an indication that you need a Bible, and uh, one will be brought to you. The book of Ephesians basically breaks up into three sections. Chapters 1 through 3 highlight for us the wealth of the believer. Paul tells us everything that we have, everything that we are in and through Christ Jesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, the wealth of the believer. Chapters 4 through Chapter 6, verse 9 is the second section of Ephesians, and that is the walk of the believer. And then the third section is chapter 6, verse 10 through the end of the book, and that is the warfare of the believer. So the wealth of the believer, the walk of the believer, and the warfare of the believer. And that sums up the address that Paul makes to the church at Ephesus as we have it recorded here in Scripture. Tonight, as we break into chapter 4, we begin the second of those three sections, that is, the walk of the Christian. Now, in some ways, it almost seems as though we're starting a new book. The tone is so different. The, the, the demeanor, the things that Paul is talking about are so radically different from what we have been seeing in the first three chapters that it almost seems that it's a different letter altogether. But keep in mind that we're not. That this is one continuous address that Paul is giving to these, and the two things are so incredibly intertwined that you cannot separate the two, even though in your mind you may be tempted to see them as two different things. In my mind, I see the Apostle Paul sitting upon a chair that's suspended halfway between heaven and earth. And in front of him, he has this super mega spotlight. You know, like those guys that are on the stage crew at a big theater or something, and they swing the spotlight around to shine it upon a particular point. And in my mind, I see Paul sitting in this chair, and for the first three chapters, he's had this giant spotlight aimed at heaven. And he's been pointing out to his audience all of the incredible things, the incredible truths that are established in heaven that are laid to the account of the people that are watching from earth. As Paul just shines and says, look at all that he's done, all that he is. But as we now turn to chapter 4, Paul takes this giant spotlight and through the lens of everything that he has already shown us, he now turns the thing back down to earth and he shines it upon the Christians that are here on earth. Chapter 3, the spotlight is in, or 1, 2, and 3, the spotlight is in heaven. Chapter 4, it's shown upon the earth. It's not a different message, but in this transition that we are making tonight as we begin chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is in effect answering the question, what effect does what we saw in heaven in chapters 1, 2, and 3 have upon our lives as Christians upon the earth now? The first three chapters highlight what we have in Christ and what we are, who we are in Christ. 
And chapters 4 through 6 now answer the question, how are we to live and what are we to do in light of all that we are and all that we have? Now, in the first 16 verses of chapter 4, Paul gives to us the first essential for a healthy walk. If we want to have a healthy walk, the section of the walk of the Christian, the first essential is that we are a part of a healthy church. Now, we're not going to look at that this week. That's what we're going to look at next week. But I'm just giving you a heads up that that is what the first essential is, is being part of a healthy church. This week, we're going to look at seven words in verse 1 of chapter 4 that define for us a walk that has worth. Now, this concept of walking with the Lord or comparing our lives as Christians to that of a walk or of a journey, it's nothing new to us. We read Jesus, he said that, that, that there is a narrow way, narrow path that leads to life. And there is a broad path that leads to death. And it's a poetic way of illustrating a, a life being lived on earth and in, in, in putting it in the poetic term of that of a walk or a journey or a pilgrimage. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Again, a poetic way of speaking of a life and how the Word of God illuminates our soul so that we can navigate through this world, the system that we're in. Again, the psalmist declared, and he said that the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. He's not talking about the steps that we take physically necessarily, but he's talking about the circumstances, the situations, the seasons of our lives. It's ordered by the Lord, but it's likened unto a walk. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he likened his life unto a course. He said, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I have received of the Lord. He saw his life as a journey, as a walk. And so we understand this concept of a walk. Well, what does it mean to walk with the Lord or to walk in the Lord? Is it something that we just say? Is it poetic and, you know, just semantics? Or does it actually mean something? What does it mean to walk with the Lord? Well, Paul, in this first verse, he uses seven words that help us to understand to encapsulate within our minds what this concept means of walking with Christ. If you look with me there, let's read verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. The first word there, if you're taking notes or if you're underlining or highlighting, the first of seven is the word therefore. That you see. Now, if you're not reading a King James, you're going to have to use the screen. I was adamant that they used the King James tonight. Is that, did they? I hope they did, or else this whole Bible study is going to make no sense to you. The first word that Paul uses there is the word therefore. And the word therefore speaks to us concerning the motivation of one who walks. Now, the thing that motivates the Christian to walk in the Lord or with the Lord is not our destination, that is where we're headed, but rather it's our origin or where we've begun. It's not where you're going in the Christian life that makes a difference. 
It's where you started. And, and now, what, what do you mean? Why is, why is therefore, how does therefore point to that? Whenever you see a therefore, you always have to ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? And by using the word therefore, as he opens up this section, this chapter of Ephesians, what he is doing is he is tying or attaching everything that he is about to say to everything that he has already said. In other words, what he is about to break into is directly related or it corresponds directly to what he has already said in the previous three chapters. Well, what did he say in the previous three chapters? 26 times in those three chapters, he used the words, in, through, or by Christ Jesus. And he has highlighted for us everything that he has given to us, everything that he has done for us, everything that we are, every blessing and advantage and position that we hold as Christians because of what Jesus Christ has done through the cross and through the blood and because of our faith, what we are in him. All of that is what's spoken of in those first three chapters of Ephesians. And it's in light of all of that that Paul is now breaking into what he's about to say in chapter 4. And he is saying that if you're going to walk with the Lord, the motivation for that walk must be connected to everything that we have and everything that we are that's in Christ Jesus. Our motivation is not where we're headed, as tempting as it might seem, but rather the thing that will make us successful in our desire and our pursuit to walk with the Lord is where we start. The Christian life, someone has said, starts at the finish line. Because everything's already been done for us. Our salvation is complete. It's been purchased. His purpose and His plan for our life has been ordained and is secure, and He will be successful in carrying it out. And so therefore, we spend our time on earth growing in this grace and ultimately catching up to what He has already established that we are because of what He's done through the cross and through His blood. And so our walk, essentially, it's not motivated in trying to attain something, but rather it's a response to what He has already attained for us. The motivation for our Christian walk is in response to what's already been done on our behalf. And thus Paul says, therefore. The second word that Paul uses that helps us to understand this concept of a walk with Christ is the word prisoner. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. The word prisoner speaks to us concerning the surrender of one who walks. Now, we have already talked extensively about what it means to be in Christ. Not only in the first three chapters of Ephesians, but also in the latter chapters of Galatians that we finished just previously to that. We understand the weight of that statement and what it means that we're in Christ. It means that when the Father wants to look at you, Because you are in Christ, he has to see Christ in order to see you. So when he sees you, all he sees is Christ. Because you are in Christ, in order for God to hear you when you pray, he has to hear Christ. It's as though he's upon his throne and he hears a voice. And when he turns to see where that voice is coming from, he sees his son. Because you're in his son. And so therefore, it's as though his son is asking. That's what it means to be in Christ. 
It means that the same favor and the same blessing, the same position that is held by the glorious Son of God is held by you and I. Not because of us and what we are, but because of Him and who He is and because we have been accepted in the Beloved and we are in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. We understand that. Now, that's the part that we revel in, we glory in, the fact that we're in Him, that we're accepted by Him, that we're blessed because of Him. That's our glory as Christians. But there's another side to that. Being in Christ not only means that we have all of that and we you know, and are entitled to all of those privileges, but it also means that our lives belong to Him. That we are not our own. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, and he says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. To the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, the apostle wrote, and he said, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That you don't belong to yourself. You possess all of the blessings, all of the advantages, all of what it means to be in Christ. But it also means that you are possessed by Him. You are owned by Him. Therefore, if you are in Him and you are not your own, then what that means? It means that all of the events, all of the issues... In all of the circumstances that encompass and surround what make up your individual life, those things belong to Him. The circumstances that you find yourself sitting in right now, the things that are both a blessing to you and the things that seem to be a thorn in your side, all of those things, no matter what it is, because you are in Christ, all of those things are owned and controlled by Him. He is sovereign over them. Now, Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell. That's what he's telling us here. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. And he was, in fact, in prison when he wrote this letter that we're reading before us. Paul was in prison? Yes, he was incarcerated. He was in prison on false charges that directly stemmed from the fact that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. It was an unjust imprisonment, if you would. He didn't deserve to be in jail. There was no reason for him to be there. And it was stopping him from doing the thing that he loved to do, which was to travel around, share with people, to plant churches. And he was hindered from that because of the conspiracy that was made and the lies that were purported and the case that was drawn up against him by his enemies and those that wanted to oppose him. And Paul had every right to complain, every right to grumble, every right to, to be bitter within him that he was stuck in this prison and that he wasn't able to be out doing the things that he wanted to do. In fact, well, Paul wasn't the prisoner of Rome. And he wasn't the prisoner of the Jews. Nor was he the prisoner of the Sanhedrin. But he saw himself as the prisoner of the Lord. That because he was in Christ and because his life belonged to Christ, therefore the circumstances and issues of his life belonged to Christ. And so that meant he was the prisoner, not of any of those things, but of God himself. God's will was that he was in prison. It's interesting that once Paul realized this, there was contentment. There was joy. 
When you read the book of Philippians and you realize that the theme of that whole entire letter is joy, and then you couple that with the fact that that letter was also written from prison, it puts perspective upon things, doesn't it? Paul had opportunity to get out of prison. There were two occasions as you read the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 24, verse 26, Felix, one of the governors, it says that he met with Paul often, hoping that money would be given to him for Paul's release. And certainly, Paul had the resources and the ability to make something happen so that he could be freed. It would be without consequence. Again, in Acts chapter 26, verse 32, Paul had the opportunity to be freed as he gave his testimony to Agrippa. But rather than taking freedom, he appealed to Caesar that he might have an opportunity to share the gospel with the most powerful man in the world of his day. Why would Paul not take the opportunity to be free? Because he realized that it was the perfect will of God for his life that he be in prison for this season. He called himself the prisoner of the Lord. And what Paul is preaching to us by calling himself the prisoner of the Lord, this is what he's saying. He is saying to you and I, he's saying to you right now, that wherever you are, if you are in Christ, is where you belong. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in as you sit here today, those circumstances are God's circumstances within your life. Whether they be the joys or whether they be the pains. And contentment comes when you realize within yourself that the circumstances that I'm in, the pains that I'm experiencing, are the pains of the Lord within my life to fulfill His sovereign purpose, His sovereign plan. The job that you have, the spouse that is sitting next to you or is linked to you, the level of your income, where you live, your last name, your family history, your personal history. All of those things have been authored and obtained, purchased by the Lord when he bought you. And so therefore they are his will for your life. And there is contentment, there is joy. And part of the walk that we experience to walk with him is to be surrendered to him. To lay all of that down at his feet and give him glory for all of it. And even to give him thanks. The prisoner speaks concerning the surrender of one who walks. The third word in that verse that Paul uses is the word beseech. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. It speaks concerning the willingness of one who walks. It's not the first time that the Apostle Paul has used this word in his writing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul uses it again. For 11 chapters, Romans 1 through 11, Paul lays before them, again, the doctrine of all that Christ has done for them through the cross and through the blood. Without ever whispering a single word of duty that the Romans were obligated to give back to the Lord. Nothing but this is what he's done for you for 11 chapters. And then as he starts chapter 12, much like he starts chapter 4 of Ephesians, he uses these words. He says, I beseech you. Same word. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That because of all of the mercy that he's shown you, all of the grace that he's extended to you, I beseech you that you offer yourselves as living sacrifices unto him that are holy and acceptable, and it's your reasonable service, Paul said. 
Same word he uses in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. The word beseech means to implore earnestly, to eagerly solicit, to urgently appeal or beg. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul certainly had the authority to use the word command. He could have said, I command you, or I charge you, or I require. Three words that Paul uses in other places, in other contexts throughout the scripture, but he doesn't use that word in light of this, in this context. He uses the word beseech, to beg or to implore. Why? Because he's calling them to choose of their own will to accept this call to walk in light of all that's been done for them. To walk with the Lord is not something that we can be forced to do. It's something that we each individually must choose to do. God never forces anything upon anyone. He created man as a free moral agent, and he gives man the freedom to choose, and he still allows us that freedom even after he's purchased us by his blood. He doesn't require it. He lays before us the reason why we should. And then he gives us a choice of whether or not we're going to walk with him or whether we won't. We must be careful as Christians in our own lives that we walk with him not because we're compelled but because we choose. But we also must be careful that we never force the things of God upon someone else. That we're careful not to force our convictions or our standards or our doctrines upon someone else. That isn't the way that God is. He doesn't force anything upon anyone. He gives people space and he lets people choose. I find that there's three areas where it's very common for Christians to force or to push or to, you know, go beyond just the beseeching, if you would. First of all, it comes with new believers. I remember being that new believer who was very pushy, very forceful. Perhaps you know one or two, or perhaps you are one. As a new believer, I remember I, I went from being completely blind to the things of God to having incredible sight. Not understanding the Bible at all, to now understanding everything I read. And all of a sudden, every religious person I knew became a target. Because I was the enemy of truth decay, you know. And I was going to let everyone know. And so I was there in every person that was toting a Bible or present in a church to let them know, make sure that they know if they're doing things right or if their standards or their convictions are up to par with the Scriptures, you know. It's not the way of God. He gives people room. He lays before them the truth and then He allows them to make the decisions for themselves. That's the way that he works. He's very gentle. He's very gracious. He's a beseeching God, not a forceful God. The second place where this happens often is with parents. Oftentimes the temptation with parents is when they see their children walking in a certain way or they see their children that are inclined in a certain way. They want to nip it in the bud. And so they'll quickly enforce rules or put up barriers that more or less enforce the standards and the convictions of Scripture. I'm not talking about things that are obviously serious that children shouldn't do, but I'm talking about some of the minor things, the questions that they have or the, 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 you know, the things that they don't understand. And, and parents are quick to, to just quench the question and just inflict the answer right there or something. You know, you know what I mean. 
you've experienced it. Maybe you've experienced it from a parent or you as a parent, you've felt that temptation to want to just quiet to the question or something, you know, beseech, educate, let them choose. The third place is with spouses. When one half of a, you know, partnership gets saved, it seems like there's a temptation to push, to force. Maybe for good reason, with good intention. I want them sitting with me. I want them to see what I see. I want them to experience what I'm experiencing. I want them to know what I know, and I want them to go where I'm going. But the temptation is to push it, to force it. You know, the, the wife will make her husband the sandwich for work and she'll put a gospel track in, in the middle of the sandwich so that he takes a bite and when he pulls, what in the, and he pulls it out and it's the big question, where are you going to go when you die, you know, or something like that. And, you know, just the temptation to try to make it happen, to try to force it. Listen, you can't, you can't do it. It has to happen as the Spirit of God brings conviction upon a life and opens someone's eyes. And only he can do that. And he only understands the way. And he does it in his time. Paul says, I beseech you. And those that walk with the Lord must do so because they choose to, not because they're forced to in any way. The fourth word that Paul uses is the word walk. And it might seem obvious in a Bible study that's about walking but it speaks concerning the action of one who walks. In preparing for this Bible study, I read about a girl, or the girl, who holds the world record for the most officially recorded miles walked. She officially logged 16,000 miles. That's almost, 24,000 is around the globe. So 16,000 miles is quite a distance. Now, if you were to ask her what's involved in accomplishing a feat like that, no pun intended. Her response would be, multiplied millions of decisions to lift my feet and go. The very word walk implicates action. That there's action involved. There's energy that must be expended. Christianity is not a profession that we make. It isn't a set of ideals and a system of beliefs that we just talk about and think about and philosophize and write and blog endlessly and put threads on Twitter and Facebook about. That, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not communication, it's demonstration. It's not about what we say, it's about what we do, it's how we walk. Have you ever noticed that you can walk without making, well almost, without making any sound at all? You can walk without making any noise whatsoever. And the effective Christian is not the one that has the strongest profession or the strongest base of Bible knowledge. But the effective Christian is the one who acts upon what they know and what they believe and what they are told. The Christian who walks or puts action behind their faith communicates more with their steps than 1,000 others that can make a good profession with their mouth. Because what we do with what we know speaks louder than what we say. And thus Paul uses this word walk to communicate to us that it isn't what we say that makes a difference. It's what we do that verifies what we say and what we know. And so a walk with the Lord requires energy and it requires action. And so this word walk speaks to us concerning the action of those that walk. The next word that he uses there is the word worthy. He says, got to turn back there. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. The word worthy speaks to us concerning the value of the walk that we walk. The Greek word for worthy that's used there, that's employed by the Apostle Paul, is the word axios. And what it means is the balancing of the scales. Have you ever seen one of those ancient scales that they used in commerce to weigh goods and, you know, to set prices and standards and all of the rest? That's the idea. The axios was the scale that would balance out when the two sides were equal. In essence, it means that what is on the one side should be equal in weight to what is on the other. If a person is worthy of their pay, then it would mean that their day's work is equal to or of equal value to what they are compensated for putting in that day's work. It's worthy. They're worthy of their pay. They put in an equal amount to what (coughs) they got out. Now, in this context, the context that Paul is using here in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's saying that the worthy walk, the value of your walk, that is the outward expression of your Christian life, should be of equal value or equal weight to the calling or the vocation that you have. Now, let me illustrate this. Take our scale that we have that has the two sides. On the one side of this scale, what we have, what we see is everything that Paul has highlighted and everything that it includes in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So on this side of the scale, you have the, the, some tangible you know, expression of your redemption. That you have been redeemed from hell. You were headed for hell. You were going there. There was nothing you could do to save yourself. It was too late to reform your behavior in order to get yourself out. You were hellbound. And that God reached into your life, and by nothing that you deserved or nothing you could earn, He picked you up and He took you out of that course that was headed towards hell, and He set you in His Son Christ in heaven, and He redeemed you from hell and forgave you of all of your sins. Now, if you could put that into a tangible object, you would place it on the one side of the scale. Second of all, it tells us that you are accepted by the Father. That he was angry at you, that you were a child of wrath, that you were, you were his enemy, but you have been translated from that position of being God's enemy to not only being God's friend, but that you are accepted. So put that into a tangible measure and put it on that side of the scale. He also told us that you are adopted, that you aren't just a friend of God, you aren't just accepted by God, but you are given his very name and you're allowed into his family, you are related to him. Put that into a tangible object and set it on that side of the scale. You are declared to be blameless, as though you had never sinned, your slate is crystal clean, you are the purity, the whiteness, the brightness of Jesus himself. Somehow put a price on that, put it in a tangible form, and put it on that side of the scale. You've been chosen by name, Paul tells us. That it wasn't a generic thing that somehow you slipped through the cracks and ended up in this group of lucky people. But that God knew the very numbers of hairs that are on your head. He knew the thoughts and he understood where they came from of every thought that you ever thought from the time that you were born. And he knew you, every cell of you, and by name he specifically chose you and placed you in this place. Somehow put a value upon that wrap it in something tangible, and put it on that side of the scale. 
He says that you are blessed in heavenly places. That means that your blessing starts in heaven and it will be seen on earth. You are ornamented with wisdom and prudence. You are enlightened concerning his will for your lives. Take all of that that Paul has said in the first three chapters of Ephesians, put a value upon it, wrap it in something tangible, and put it on that side of the scale. Are you starting to see what's going on here? The scale is beginning to slightly favor on this side. Now, take the value of your consecration and your devotion, and your commitment to Christ, and your walk, that is what people see when they look at the expression of your Christianity, and you're now going to put that on the other side of the scale, and Paul says that it should be of equal weight. That you should walk worthy of the vocation wherein you are called. So the strength and the power and the purity of your devotion is to be such that it somehow lifts all of that off of the ground and it comes into some sort of an equilibrium. Now the whole concept of that is laughable, isn't it? Is there anybody here that by show of hands that you would say that your walk, your commitment to Christ, your consecration, that it's somehow, that that it's there. You're there. You're walking in a way that's worthy. Any new believers here? (laughs) It's, It's almost blasphemous. Now, think this through with me for a minute. Come back to the scale and, and, and look at it. And there you are, you're on one side, and all that he's done, all that he's given for us is on the other side of the scale. And just imagine with me for one minute that we began to just take the things that were on this side of the scale, all that he's done, and remove them one by one. So we take away that he's given us his will, that he's ornamented us with wisdom and prudence. We take away the blessing that originates in heaven. And we take away, you know, the, the adoption. We don't have his name anymore. We're still his friend, but we don't have his name, you know. And we just, one by one, we start taking these things off until it comes to the last thing that's on the scale. And, and now we're going to remove that. We're going to take it away. And so we, we get our, you know, crane and we hook, hook it up to whatever that is. And we lift it off slowly. But something mysterious happens. Is that when you lift off that last thing that's sitting on that scale, that's holding down that side, amazingly, strangely, the scale doesn't move. The scale is still, in a sense, weighted down all the way to the ground, even with none of what was on the scale that Paul listed. It's still there. And, and here you are in all of your purity and your devotion and you know your consecration and all that is. You're still on this side of the scale and you're jumping up and down. You're like, bring me God. you know, And you're trying everything you can to try to bring the side of the scale down, but it doesn't move. And so you begin to, to, to get curious and you look at it. You look at the scale and you say, well, why isn't the scale moving even though none of what he has done, has given, that's listed, is there? Why not? And you look at the scale and what you see is that it wasn't all of those things, the redemption, the forgiveness, the adoption, the acceptance, the blessing, none of that is what was holding it down. But you see that there is a nail that goes directly through the palm of the blessed Son of God And it's going through the bottom of that scale and is holding it to the ground. And when you see that nail and you see that hand and you realize the thing that is holding that scale down, the thing that brings weight and glory to the wealth of what we have, it's none of what he's done by giving us anything. He gave us himself himself. 
He gave us his son. He spilled out his very blood. He was crucified on a cross as a man. As an expression of his love towards us. That's the thing that carries the weight in this Christian experience. And for any of us to ever think that our devotion or the strength of our walk or our commitment can in any way be of any equality to the value of what he is and what he's done is borderline blasphemous. It's laughable. It absolutely can't be done. See, our lives will never be worthy of the name Christian. But somehow God in his mercy takes and puts us on the other side of that scale and he allows us to carry his name and he allows us to represent him. And he gives us the privilege of being his sons and daughters, a position that we never could earn, never deserve, that we don't even know what to do with, and we don't even understand it. But he gives us this calling, and he says to walk worthy of the name Christian that you have. It can't be done. But what it speaks to us is this, and the reason that Paul uses it there, and the concept that he's seeking to communicate, is that because of all that he's done, there ought to be nothing within our lives that we would ever hold back and say, God, you're not worthy that I should surrender this to you. God, you're good and everything, and, and I love you, and I'm thankful for your salvation, and I'm going to heaven and all that, but there are some things in my life that I'm really, that are important to me, and I'm just not sure if everything that you did is worth it to, for me to put that on the scale. Maybe, maybe, God, if you threw in a better house or a better job or a spouse then we could go back to the table and maybe I'll be a little more consecrated to you, you know, if, if you could weigh down your side of the scale a little bit more, you know. And we think that way, don't we? We think, well, the expression of God's love will be when he begins to pour out his blessing upon my life. Listen, the expression of God's love is that nail. It's the blood that's been shed. And so for us to hold anything back from God is ridiculous. It's pure ridiculous. He's entitled to every ounce of who we are and what we do. And therefore, no matter what stage or phase of life we're in, our goal, our drive, our ambition is that he would possess more of us. That we would be more consecrated to him. That our lives would be further surrendered to his cause. And that there would be nothing held back on our behalf. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He said, brethren, I count not myself to have attained. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth to those things that are which are before, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And this word worthy that Paul uses is to put that mindset within us that, listen, your life will never even come close. It won't even make that scale budge that there would be an equal weight. But what he deserves from us is that our lives would be completely given to him. That there be nothing that we possess of our own, but that it all belongs to him. The sixth word there is the word vocation. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. Wherewith you are called. And it speaks concerning the individual work that he has given each of us to do. If you flip back just a, a page or two to chapter 2, verse 10. The Apostle Paul there said to the same group of people, he said that we are his workmanship. 
his artwork, his poema, created in Christ Jesus unto, or for the purpose of, good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There is a specific intent and purpose for your existence within the body of Christ. There is not one person that is saved, that is called by him, that is bought by him, that is adopted into his family, that is called to be a lifer in the pews. I'm a lifer in the pews. I'm, I'm committed. This is my seat. I have my print in it. My name is on the beginning of the row. It will be there for a thousand years after I'm dead because this is, this is my... This, this seat speaks, this is my testimony that I will leave to the world that I was a Christian. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. There is a place for us within the pews. Each of us needs to be fed, to be taught, to be reminded continually his ways, his person, his work, his word, to let it do his work within us. But beyond that, there is something that God has given you to do that no one else can do. He's given you a gift and a calling and a platform to use it and operate within it that nobody else can do. And part of the Christian walk is discovering what that is and then embracing it and walking in it. Do you know what your gifts are? If someone were to ask you, what are the spiritual gifts that God has given you and what is the purpose that he has saved you for? Now, obviously, none of us can maybe answer that perfectly because only God knows our future and what's to come. But can you express, can you say, these are the gifts that God has given me. These are the talents that I've received from him. The things that I have to to bring glory to his name. And are you using those things? Now, it might very well be that you might say, yeah, mother. That's it. And, And that's completely credible. That's completely valid. You know, I know a lot of times mothers, they feel pressure. Like they're, they've got the, the kids, they're trying to take care of their husbands. They're working out in the home. All these things are happening. And they, and they have this pressure on them that they feel like they need to be doing something at the church. No, no, no. Mother, we need mothers in the body of Christ. Because if there isn't a mother that's nurturing a child and bringing them up in the ways of the Lord and laying that foundation in spiritual things at home, then what you're going to have is a child who's a firecracker that's uncontrollable in the church later. So mother is a calling from God. Don't think that because you're not serving in the church, mom, that you're not serving Christ. Just as Paul was the prisoner of the Lord, you might be the mom of the Lord. But are you honest with God and with yourself about your calling and your place within the body of Christ? Did you know that the human body has 6,000 parts? Six, and I'm sure there's many, 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 many more than that. But just named parts that are worthy of mention, there are 6,000 parts in the body, the human body. And each one of them is essential for the whole well-being of the body at large. And the same thing is true in the church. There is a place, if God has put you in a church, in this church or in any church, then there is a place that he's carved out for you to fit and to operate within it so that the whole body experiences its full health and its full blessing. If part of your human body just decided, you know what, I'm, an e- I'm, I'm a lifer to sit and idle and just take in the food that comes and enjoy it, but... I'm not going to produce insulin, says the pancreas. You know, I'm not going to produce marrow. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to walk, says the toe. You know, I don't want to balance the body. If a part of the body decides that it's just going to sit idle 
and not serve the purpose for which it was intended, then it affects the entire body at large. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. Do you see yourself as someone who is given a vocation from the Lord? You have a calling. There is a specific work for you to do. He's saved you for a reason. He didn't rapture you the second you were saved. That means there's something for you to do while you're here behind. And Paul says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. The last word there, the seventh word at the end of the verse is the word called. And the word called speaks to us of the privilege of someone who walks. I remember when I was in high school, and even before that, because this is something that you are born with, but I was more or less the class clown, you know. And I had this way, this method, I knew how to get under the skin of a teacher. I just knew the, the right buttons to push, but to do it in a way where I wasn't crossing the line. You know, I knew how to push the envelope and stretch the line to the point where it was almost going to herniate. And you would see that hernia start to come out of the neck of the teacher and the head and the, you know, the, the face would turn red, but without it breaking. And, and I knew how to do it and I took advantage of it as often as I could. But at the same time, I had the ability to make them absolutely love me. And that's an incredible gift. I can't do it anymore, you know. But I remember that there was one occasion where I was on a school trip and we went to something, a museum or whatever, and I remember that one of the chaperones just was constantly had their eye on me like this because they knew, you know. And they came up to me as we were just starting this thing and they cornered me and they said, now, Nick, I want you to know something. They said, you represent Hilton High School. And I remember thinking to myself, like, first of all, I was thinking, well, why are you saying this to me? You know, what did I do? But on the other half of my brain, I was going, who cares? <laughs> you know? Now think about this for a minute. You and I, called by Christ, saved by His blood, He's written His name on us. We don't represent some silly high school. We don't represent Dutchess County, which would be an honor, Bill. We don't represent... New York State, which would, even though it's not in the best condition, it would still be an honor. We don't represent the United States of America, the leader of the free world. We don't represent Western civilization. We don't represent the world. We represent the God of the entire universe and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have been given this incredible privilege to bear his name and to carry his message and to live it out with our life in the way that we behave, the way that we walk. And it is an incredible privilege, something that we can not even really grasp. We can't even wrap our minds around the incredible privilege that you and I have been given to bear this great name, this great privilege that we have. But Paul says that this is a calling. It isn't something that you fell into or that is a default upon your life because you're sitting in a pew. But that specifically and by name, on purpose, he has called you and he's placed you in his body. He's given you a gift. And it's a privilege that we have. And we ought to live that way. That our lives ought to reflect the privilege that we have in bearing his name to a lost 
and dying world. The musicians can come as we close. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard tonight. The object of any Bible study is not what we learn, but it's how it changes the way that we live. Now, the primary thought that it is common to have after you hear a Bible study like this or a sermon that measures the quality of your Christianity, the common thought is to just say, well, I need to try harder. I need to do better. You know, I need to really assess my efforts and, and, and really you know, see where I'm at, and I need to just apply myself more to the things of God. Listen, that's not the proper response to this word tonight. See, the irony of the Christian life is that the answer is never try harder. The answer is never do better. See, more effort in the Christian life really means harder failure. The two things are synonymous because our best efforts can never measure up. We, we can try as hard as we want, but all that does is, is really the higher we try, the further we fall when we fail because our efforts are worthless before God. Increased effort always produces increased failure. The response to the things that the Spirit is speaking to us tonight is not try harder, but rather it's surrender more. It's yield more of your life into the hands of the one who loved you. The Spirit has spoken to you tonight in the same way that he spoke to me as I was preparing this and going through and looking at these things and letting the searchlight of Paul as he shone it from heaven and letting it hit my heart and measure really where I'm at and the things that I'm thinking, the things that I'm doing. If God's spoken to you the same way he's spoken to me, then there's probably some areas tonight where you felt the conviction of his spirit hit your heart as I've shared. God's desire for us is that we experience his fullness. He wants us to know his blessing. He wants us to know him in, in, the, in the biggest way that we can. That's his desire. That's his will for our lives. And if we hold on to things, if there's areas in our life where we say, Lord, this is mine, or I'm not going to give that to you, or I'm not going to surrender the circumstance, or I'm not going to find joy in this season of my life, then what we're doing is we're hindering our own blessing. We're keeping him from doing his work within us. His work is always good. His desire for us is always for peace and not for evil. And if there's an area of your life that God has brought into your mind tonight, as I've shared these things, and you would like prayer, you would like God to help you to surrender these things, and I just ask you to stand up right where you're seated. I'm not going to embarrass you or have you come forward or talk or no one's going to ask you, but just stand where you're seated and say, Yes, Lord, I, I hear you tonight. I hear what you're saying to me hear your voice, that you are drawing me deeper. You want more of my life. You're worthy of more of my life. That's you. I just ask you, even right now, just stand before the Lord. Maybe there's a prison. You're in a prison in your life. And and something in you is refusing to accept it. You're saying, no, God, I'm not, I I don't want this. This can't be my thing right now. I, I, I don't want it in my life. God is saying, this is my perfect will for you. This is what I'm calling you to. This is what I want for you. This is where you're going to experience the most of me. Maybe you see that scale in your mind. And there's something that's compromising the worth of your walk. There's maybe some sin even that you're holding on to and saying, I'm not going to get rid of this. I, I, I like it too much. Or maybe I, maybe I want to and I don't know how. 
but God, I want your help. Stand. Maybe it's something completely unsaid or unrelated. It hasn't even come up in the study, but God's brought it into your mind tonight as you've heard the word shared. You know that God wants to help you. He wants to work it out. We're giving you a chance to stand before God. Let him see the position of your heart. Not as though he needs that, but it's for you. And I want to pray for you. Father, I just pray right now, Lord, you see every heart in this place. You're familiar with every path, every course, every life, every heart. And right now, Lord, as circumstances are being lifted up to you, as situations are being surrendered before you, as issues perhaps of iniquity are being laid down at the altar, as consecration is happening, as fellowship is taking place between heaven and earth, as you reach into the lives and the hearts of your people here, I would pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit in such a powerful way, that you would hear the prayers, that you would give joy right now where there's frustration, that you would give peace where there's pain, that you would give freedom where there's addiction, you would replace depression with joy. And where there's burden, Lord, where there's such heavy burden over something maybe so deep it's never been communicated to anyone else. I pray that right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make it known to your people that you are moving through that very thing for their good. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. That you're not angry. That these things in our lives, they don't make you frustrated. They're not a shock to you. But you so desire just to heal and to bless. And so I pray right now, Lord Jesus, that you would pour out your spirit upon your flock. Let us taste and see that you're gracious. Let this be a point where the strength of our walk is increased and where the worth of our profession is weighty and powerful. Honor those, Lord, that have tonight stood before you. Hear their cry. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now let's all stand together.